Here's some sponsors to further kill your enjoyment of the evening. The Incomparable is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code Incomparable at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The Incomparable. Number 235, February 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. We are here. I'm convening another meeting of the old movie club. Old movie club. How convenient. Our uh, topic today will be two films from Alfred Hitchcock. This has been pitched to me as the underappreciated Hitchcock segment. We are going to be talking about 1943's Shadow of a Doubt and 1948's Rope. And uh, I will introduce um, my panelists now. David Lore, hello. Good evening. Monty Ashley. I only watched these movies to demonstrate that I could commit a perfect murder. Mm. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) My plan had a lot of holes in it. A lot of flaws. Especially since you just confessed in a podcast. (laughs) Ah! My tragic flaw. Mm, indeed. Andy Anako. Hello. Hi there. I, I, I'm going to be a bit late coming in here because I'm selling a newspaper to a suspiciously portly gentleman mm. whose back is turned to the camera. Oh, nope. He's already left. I'm okay now. <laughs> he looked familiar. I don't. I couldn't, I couldn't play. He's just, he was just through so quickly that I couldn't place him. Couldn't really see his face. And Dan Moran. Hello. Uh, no one will convict me for killing all of you. That's <clears throat> probably accurate. Well. Steve Lutz, also out there. Who could forget Steve Lutz? I can't imagine a person could forget Steve Lutz. Well, you you sing our theme song to the old movie club every it's time. It's true. Old movie club. That's you. Not, not really a theme or a song, no. <laughs> but the theme song for the old movie club. It is. Anyway. And uh, the instigator of this whole thing is Philip Michaels. Can you explain um, your thinking in this, the, the concept that you, you, uh, you chose for us with these two films? I would be happy to, Jason. I think um, when you mention Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the movies that most rapidly spring to mind are are your Psychos and your North by Northwests and uh, maybe your Rear Windows or if you're if you're really a a film snoot, uh, Vertigo or or even The Birds. But um, uh, for my money, <laughs> basically the movie is in high anxiety. <laughs> yes. Well, while I love uh, North by Northwest, I, I think that's a, a really good movie. I think some of Hitchcock's best work is some of his uh, earlier stuff. And I think it often gets um, overlooked for one reason or another. And I, I, I wanted to, to uh, bring these movies, one of which is my favorite Hitchcock movie. And the other of which is, I, I think is really a neat, uh, a neat bit of film film trickery mm. that uh i i think we can talk about all right should we start with uh, then with shadow of a doubt from 1943 and not to, spoiler alert this is my favorite hitchcock movie. Ah. oh you've ruined the rest of the podcast yeah well, <laughs> turn on out folks <laughs> and if you if if interviews with alfred hitchcock are to be believed this was his favorite movie of interesting all. Mm-hmm. that That's man true. is a liar yeah <laughs> So, Shadow of a Doubt, as you said, it's uh, 1943, um, and it is uh, filmed in a place very, very near to where Jason and I are podcasting tonight, Santa Rosa, California. But I get, I get ahead of myself. The movie opens up in um, what is some sort of urban hellscape. I assume it's Philadelphia. It's Newark, it's, which it's is Newark. as hellish Newark, a hellscape yeah. as one can come well, up with. It, 
it, it has that whole East Coast life is deteriorating <laughs> vibe. And uh, although it looks rather Newcastle esque as well. Oh yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I have earlier, expect a kazoo parade to walk through in the yes. opening segment. <laughs> Shout out to earlier what? episodes. Yes, that's right. That's some old movie club continuity there. Deep catalog. Yes. Mm-hmm. The right people will get it. <laughs> yep. They won't appreciate it, but they'll get it. <laughs> I don't appreciate it, and I said it. <laughs> Joseph Cotton is lying on a bed. And, uh, Indeed. All right. As it turns out, uh, some some dudes are looking for him, and uh, and uh, he looks to be a, a cat in a spot of trouble. So he eludes the, the two guys that are looking for him and sends a telegram to his family in Santa Rosa, California, that he's going to come out for a visit. Meanwhile, at that same time in Santa Rosa, California, uh, the family who is um, uh, uh, represented by Teresa Wright, who plays... Also, uh, a young lady named Charlie. I should mention that Joseph Cotton is Uncle Charlie, so they have that connection, you see. And Also, she... they may be the only two intelligent people in their entire family. Well, we'll get to that, I think, later in, in the, the whole movie. town of Santa Rosa. Yes, it's it's not a very bright family. <laughs> so, so um, Teresa Wright is a bit down in the dumps. She's feeling that they're in a rut, and then she gets on the idea to uh, invite Uncle Charlie out for a visit. Oh, Uncle Charlie sent a telegram that he's coming. Yeah. They have, they, they have a connection, you see. And uh, Uncle Charlie arrives and almost immediately... the. Can I stop you for a moment just yeah, because sure. I enjoy the line? I enjoy the exchange between the lady at the telegraph company and, <laughs> yes. and young Charlie, where she says, have you ever thought about telepathy? And the old lady's like... Telepathy's my business. I ought to believe in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to, what struck me was the fact Weird. the Telegraph lady seemed genuinely worried about her business model for a second there. Yeah. Like, wait a second, wait a second, you can communicate without wires? What's going this on here? This bubble was never going to burst. It's Uber, but for telegrams. Anyhow, <laughs> so Uncle Charlie arrives in town, and almost immediately, both the viewer and Teresa Wright can spot that there's something not quite right about Uncle Charlie. <laughs> that he's, he's got some secrets. He, he does some very weird things. He's snatching newspapers out of people's hands. He's, he's giving out gifts with other people's names engraved on them. And um, He talks uh, about how elderly women should probably be choked just on principle. What, well, we're getting, ahead of, we're getting ahead of ourselves it's a lot of fun at dinner parties. Yes. So uh Also so, I had that moment of like, hey, it's Joseph Cotton. I remember him from Such the, movies as as the third man and Citizen Kane. And I now suspect him of everything, right? Well, just... if, except in those movies, he's he's like he's, the hero, he's or at yeah. least he's a nice yeah. guy. And and here he shows up, and he's he's he immediately gives off a creep vibe. And and the first time I ever saw this movie, I said, "Well, it's all going to be okay because Joseph Cotton's a nice guy." No, he's mm. not a nice <laughs> no. guy. He's very bad at being a nice guy in this. That newspaper yeah. shenanigan. Yeah, he's well, trying to even... cover his tracks, and all it does is make everybody in the house say. Hey, look what Uncle Charlie did to that newspaper. He stole a page. Hey, everybody. He, he ripped up Dad's newspaper. Dad's going to be upset. Even before that, like when he shows up at the station and he lets everybody else carry his bags for him, even like the little kids are like carrying his bags. He's like, I'm just going to stand back here. I'm not, you know, he pretends to be sick too first, right? Like he's getting off the yeah. train. He looks all feeble. And then he's like springing along and sauntering. And then he's like, yes, children, carry my heavy bags for me. Did newspapers cost the equivalent of about $600 in 1943? Because Dad must be unbelievably anal about that newspaper. The kids are terrified. Remember that back then, if he, if he missed out on that paper, there's only going to be another four hours wait until the next one. <laughs> Don't dare take the comics. Clarence will fly into a murderous rage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Anyhow, I, I, I assume that everyone's, oh, Uncle Charlie, he's always playing tricks and stunts, and mm. that's why why you have that. So two gentlemen show up, and they're they're pretending to do a survey of the average <laughs> American family. In, basically, the FBI in those days has, has no... Um, no skill at subterfuge no. or surveillance, because because it's quite clear that they are there solely to check up on Uncle Charlie. They had as much skill as they needed. Yes, <laughs> yes, because this this is very much a "Hey, your shoelace is untied" uh, kind of uh, people you need to deal with. They're there on behalf of a Nigerian prince who's who's got mm-hmm. a bank account for him. We're we're at the point where. Um, uh, FBI man uh, uh, Dirk Squarejaw uh, breaks the news to, <laughs> to. I thought to, he was Zeppo marked. I honestly thought for a moment he was Zeppo marked. He just had that sort of wavy hair, yeah. pointy nose. <laughs> Zeppo long torso breaks the news to Charlie that um, I, I thought he was that, Dean Martin after several good punches to the face. That her <laughs> uncle um, might actually be a murderer. Murderer, <laughs> yes, and not just any murderer. But a serial killer who goes around like wooing widows and taking their money and then leaving them for dead, and uh, it's either it's either him or another guy on the East Coast, so they're they're following him. <laughs> it's, so, it's it's like week eleven of American Idol. We know it's going to be one of these two. Stay tuned after the break to find. out I don't out feel who. good about the crime fighting of nineteen forty three. They're like, well, we got it narrowed down. It's one of two guys who's been murdering everybody. What is the evidence? Is there some like Schrodinger's cat evidence somewhere that it's like it's definitely one of these two guys? Well, the we thing just that don't they know which one later on is that they have the same initials. Is the thing like when they when they talk later on about like the guy they captured his initials are also like co so like apparently they, he left like a monogram Mon- handkerchief yes. at the scene of the crime or something I, I believe this is what we call in the business a macguffin mm-hmm. to just keep the plot moving along well, apparently yes. the way it works is that as soon as one suspect is dead all of the others are exonerated <laughs> yeah well, yeah, well also re- realize realize this was j edgar hoover's fbi so first step <laughs> eliminate all the protestants because that really narrows the suspect pull down if they're positive they know it's one of these two guys I feel like they could have turned up their investigation a little more than <laughs> running the, the old week long fake survey scam. <laughs> that, 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 does, that, does in, that does indicate that their entire manpower on this case was four guys. Cause they had to split them in two two guys that way, two guys the other way. Probably not uh, enlisting the help of an 18 year old lady to be your main <laughs> mm-hmm. operative is, uh, is also a bad law enforcement strategy. So uh, mm. now young Charlie is beginning to have her suspicions about Uncle Charlie, who is getting creepier and creepier with every scene. And, and there was not a lot for room for him to go there because he no. started pretty creepy. And also, those two are flirting with each other in yeah, every what's with scene. The weird, oh, yeah. What is with the weird, yeah. uncomfortable sexual tension? Well, I think that's quite intentional on um, Hitchcock's part. And speaking of movies that Teresa Wright uh, would go on to make, she later made a movie with Joseph Cotton in which she did play as one. Oh, scandalous. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, basically... uh, Uncle Charlie starts off at the ceiling of Creepy and then, like, hires a crew to <laughs> borrow through the ceiling and add on a new attachment. And because um, uh, Andy mentioned it already, the the, the monologue that um, that Uncle Charlie gives about um, widows is, um, is, 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 is quite delightful. One of my favorite bits of dialogue in any Hitchcock movie uh, – because it, and and what do the wives do? These useless women. You see them in the hotels, the best hotels, every day by the thousands. 
drinking their money, eating their money, <laughs> losing money at bridge, playing all day and night, smelling of money, proud of their jewelry, but of nothing else. Horrible, faded, fat, greedy women. Are they are they human? Or are they fat, wheezing fat, animals? Wheezing animals. Hmm? And what ha- happens to animals when they get too fat and too old? And 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 the context of this is he's supposed to give a speech to the local women's club. And, Char- and Charlie's mother, Uncle Charlie's sister, says, "Oh, I hope you don't give that speech to the club." <laughs> he's really great at speechifying. By I'm the workshopping way. Yeah. it at a few open mics tonight. <laughs> <Yeah. before. laughs> he's the Santa Rosa's greatest orator of all time. By contrast, my favorite dialogue in the movie is, say, I've never had a wristwatch. The fellows at the bank will think I'm quite a sport. <laughs> well, it's, it's evidenced by the fact that he doesn't know how to put it on. He tries it, he fumbles, mm. but yeah. It's Anyhow, no... uh, ev- everyone uh, in Santa Rosa just embraces Uncle Charlie to their bosom yes. because cause he is the most wonderful thing, which I, I think is, again, a very intentional thing that Hitchcock did because the, the, the terror in this movie is what if you know something horrible about someone that you uh, previously loved and admired and no one believes you? Yeah, everybody likes yeah. them. Yeah, because yeah. you never said anything to anybody. So, a- a- as we've mentioned, um, there are two suspects, and uh, uh, Charlie is convincing Uncle Charlie he needs to leave town, and and he's about to bolt. And then all of a sudden, word comes over the radio that suspect number two has uh, fled from the FBI and run into a propeller blade, <laughs> thus closing the case. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, master of plot. Yeah, not to not to foreshadow, but if you're uh, if you're a serial murderer, I suggest watching out for various forms of transportation. That yes. seems like you're undoing. Yes. Yep. And if it's down to you and one other guy, find the other guy. <laughs> Take care of the other guy. As we've mentioned, Hume Cronin is in this movie as the as the next door neighbor yes. who has a fascination with true crime and murders, and uh, he, he he literally says at that point when the news comes up over the radio, "Well, I guess that wraps up this case." <laughs> And He's so, kind of like the Rick Moranis of this movie. I, I am fascinated by Hume Cronin's character and also his relationship <laughs> with the dad, where they have these conversations of how they will kill, how I will kill you. I can yes. get away with it this way. It makes perfect sense, though, because he murders the dad, who then goes on to become Clarence the Angel. So it all works out. <laughs> this, this was the 1940s. It was the love that could not speak its name. They're great, though. I think they're my favorite part although of this how, movie. How, although how freaky was it to see? I, I actually had to like look up his age. He was 32 years old. Oh, my God. He's like a young Hume Cronin. I didn't know yes. they even made them at that age. Yeah, I had never seen a non-raisiny Hume Cronin. I had only ever seen <laughs> right, him in exactly. But he has kind of a like a Henry Winkler meets Val Kilmer thing going with maybe like just a dash of just a dash of Crispin Glover thrown in or yeah, something. I think I, more than a dash, he may have a whole cup of Crispin Glover thrown that's, in. That's, that is a weird, weird character. That, yeah. That's that's a pretty strong Jessica Tandy magnet right there. Okay. <laughs> Hume Cronin is the uncomfortable neighbor who really likes talking about killing people. Yep. Yep. It so, shows up and always shows up like in the middle dinner of dinner. <laughs> Because he's a lonely man. Yeah, he'll just walk into the house at dinner time. It's amusing. Well, thank God he does. All he has is his mother and his murders. That's a key plot point. Yeah. yeah I'm telling he you, he's, he's Lewis Tully. Yeah, I, I, the way I read that character, too, is I kept sort of expecting that he would be blamed for a for a murder down the down the line. Because, you know, we always mm. talked about murders, and he's super creepy and kind of a weirdo. He, happened, and, he, uh, happened no. br- he just happened to swing by with a basket of poison mushrooms just to explain how yeah. easy it would be to slip these into people's mm-hmm. food. Also, I love the part where he poisons his coffee with soda. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Oh, yeah, that was, that was a great bit. I don't right. think the mushrooms are poison that he brings over. I think he just brings them as an example of mushrooms. Yes. So yeah. he can discuss poisoned mushrooms. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> See these mushrooms? Because if I had not brought the visual aid, you would have no idea what I was mm-hmm. talking about. He's a prop comic. Uncle Charlie <laughs> just bounds up the stairs, joyful that he's off the hook. Yep. And then he turns around and looks at young Charlie and realizes... Oh, God, she knows I have to totally kill her. Yeah. And and so the remainder of the movie, which at this point we've got like 20 minutes, half an hour left, is just basically him trying to kill his niece over and over again. And being really bad at it. A couple things. One is I love the scene where he's on the stairs. First off, there are a lot of staircases in this movie. Yes. This movie is is there's a staircase in the house and a back staircase. That's a Hitchcock thing. It's all. Yes. uh, And and he's full staircase. (laughs) Peak staircase. <laughs> Peak staircase, yes. Uh, I love the scene where Joseph Cotton gets to the top of the stairs and he just stops and you're still looking at his back. You know, you and, and, and he's just standing there and that's that realization that she's down there in the doorway looking at him and that this is going to be a problem. And that's yep. just a fantastic, fantastic scene. The other thing I wanted to mention is the the when we talk about old movies, we often talk about pacing. Um and I, I don't want to say this in, in a negative way. I, what I would let me phrase it this way: If there were a modern retelling of this film, um, we would get to the he's going to try to kill her repeatedly like ten minutes in, and then it would go on for two hours. And that's right. not what happens in this movie. There's like an hour of setup before we even get close to uh, realizing where this movie is going to end up. Whereas a modern movie would just the whole movie would just be. Uh, like Final Destination, except it's Charlie mm. trying to kill Charlie. Um, Charlie versus Charlie. Oh, God. That could be what we call it. Anyway, so I appreciated that it was sort of, it, it escalates to this moment, and then we get this sort of frenzied last half hour where um, there's the back and forth of him trying to kill her. And I think, in a way, that's why this is Hitchcock's favorite movie, because it, it, is, it is the slow build to perfection. Um, yeah. where where it, it builds and builds and builds and the tension uh, increases throughout the movie until until the last act, which is basically, yeah, things are happening. And so there you go. <laughs> I mean, there's that whole wonderful conversation about basically what is an earworm that goes for about five minutes early on because she can't get the song out of her head. And then I think songs like that transfer from head to head. And if I hum it long enough, you'll think what it is. And then he has to distract them before anyone realizes it's the Merry Widow. Yeah, so who was who started off humming the Merry Widow? I, I missed on who it was that initiated yep. that. Young I Charlie. Think it's her. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. So there was another telepathy thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You think you're the clever little girl who knows something. There's so much you don't know. So much. What do you know, really? You're just an ordinary girl living in an ordinary little town. You wake up every morning of your life and you know perfectly well that there's nothing in the world to trouble you. You go through your ordinary little day and at night you sleep your untroubled ordinary little sleep filled with peaceful, stupid dreams. And I brought you nightmares. Yeah, Uncle Chuck broke the goofy (laughs) meter with that (laughs) dialogue. Yeah. Mm. That's Uncle Charlie to his beloved niece, Mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen. It was when he was seven and he started talking that way that it was really creepy. He tries to knock her down the stairs. He tries to uh, asphyxiate her in a in a garage with a door slammed shut, and she's stuck in there with a which almost works. Yes, with running a, car. Yeah, yeah, but Hume Cronin saves the day. Doesn't he actually does. doesn't rescue her. Just goes and tells everyone else that there's someone exactly. locked yeah. in there. Which <laughs> seems... was that, did that seem like a red herring to anybody else? I I almost felt as though oh they're going to indicate that he's actually the detective because no he didn't just happen to be walking by he was actually casing and keeping an eye on things and I was pretty surprised to find out that no he was just being Hume Cronin. I think they did that because it creates the stagecraft where Uncle Charlie can 
put the keys back in the car and and make it yeah. look like it wasn't a total setup. Yeah. Because otherwise, you you say, well, how did this happen? And well, someone was trying to kill her, obviously. Whereas here, it looks just like an accident. If Uncle Charlie is the first into the uh, into the garage, which he he is in that scene. Although he's got to get back first before anybody else does and kick the thing yeah. out from under the door in order right. to carry it off, yeah. which is kind of a a problem with that plan. <laughs> I, th- I I think the only I I don't think it was that specific. I think it was just because everybody else is inside the house when you're writing the screenplay. Oh well, how do they find? He, he's he's also turn, cranked up the radio like coincidentally two seconds into and news from news from from Washington State as hunt for the click. Hey, let's listen to some really loud music now. Why is it so loud, <laughs> yeah. Uncle Charlie? Oh, because you don't like get the bass. You don't get the bass until you crank mm-hmm. it up, which is his actual line. I, I think that it was like, okay, who do we have that's not in the house right now as a screenwriter? Uh, Hume Cronin. Okay, whatever. We'll we'll just say he he happened to be passing by. That may have been Hume's suggestion. I notice I'm not in this scene, guys. Come on. Let me take a brief break to tell you about our sponsor, Squarespace. You know, building a website can be tough. And even if you know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well can be really time consuming. Whether it's for a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant or whatever else, today you probably need one. And lucky for us, Today, there's Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. You don't have to be a cross-trainer who knows about code, you know, about JavaScript and CSS, and knowing about uh, user experience, design. Forget it. You don't have to do it. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful website templates for you to work with. Not only that, but these templates are part of Squarespace's responsive design, which means your website scales to look great on any device, further minimizing the hassles of making a website on your own. Every website you build also comes with free online e-commerce. That's right, a free online store if you need it. Do you just need something minimalistic yet powerful? The cover page feature lets you set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. Back in the day when I first started to build websites, it was all hands on deck. You had to, I, t- I used to teach web design and it was brutal because the tools weren't very good. Uh, building templates was hard. And as I said earlier, you can't cross train. There very few people have all of the skills required to make a beautiful website. That's the great thing about what Squarespace has put together. You can't beat the ease and simplicity of Squarespace. There's 24-7 online support, and you'll get a beautiful website for $8 a month. You can even get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial. You don't have to give them a credit card or anything like that. It's a free trial, and you can start building your website today. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code incomparable to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. Thank you so much to Squarespace for supporting the incomparable. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The reason that Charlie, I mean, I, I take the point that uh, everybody likes him. He's given a speech or he's about to go when he tries to kill her. He's get, going to go give a speech that's going to go down as one of the finest speeches in Santa Rosa history. <laughs> a minister says so, Jason. Yeah. You can't doubt a minister. <laughs> now, you guys are right near Santa Rosa. How, yes. how does that speech stack up? I, in Santa Rosa history. I'm going to have to check. I think there's a, I think there's a plaque somewhere oh, about the great Santa great. Rosa, home of the legendary 1947 speech by to the Unitarian Club yeah. by Uncle Charlie. Yeah. I think Charles Schultz gave a speech a few years later that went over well, but other than that, it was He's the no best Uncle speech. Charlie, they said. No. No. <laughs> no. You, your talk of peanuts is interesting, Mr. Schultz, but uh, Unless you mention fat wheezing animals, I'm not very <laughs> widows. Yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. my point is that young Charlie is, is the the thing that he's got over her her 
that prevents her from telling anybody this. You know, it's not until the very, very end that he's even well-liked in the town. It's that it would break her mother's heart. Which is why I wanted to mention this, because her mother is an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) You know what else might break mom's heart? When daughter dies. Mm, Just a thought, Charlie. Math breaks her heart. Well, he, he, to, 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 his, to his credit, he does this really nice, sinister speech saying, well, you could talk, but, you know, you're, you're ill ruin your mother. And, hey, well, how about your dad's job at the bank? He'll probably get fired from that. Mm-hmm. Your whole family's going to be ruined. All you got to do is just not say anything, and your family will still be perfectly fine. And, you know, periodically I'll try to kill you, but, you know. If you can ignore Details. that, it works I, out. I, I just think that in, in this motley crew of like mental negatives, you have to like maintain this this girl as someone, the one person in the cast who has a good head on her shoulders. You wouldn't want your father to lose that job just when everybody decided he was quite a sport. Yeah, <laughs> they might start asking <laughs> how, how how can a, how can a small wheel like him afford a pocket a, a wristwatch of all things? Any, anyway, I, I I her mother drives me nuts because she is uh, just <laughs> it is not a really great performance. It is not or character. It's a difficult character to watch. She's flighty and silly and pointless and I, I mean it gets across the fact that she'll be completely destroyed because she loves her she loves her brother so much that but yeah it's um I don't like that character at all yeah we don't hear about how she drove into a streetcar three times in her year <laughs> <laughs> I think the flightiness is quite intentional so that um so that it's driven home that uh uh young Charlie is between a rock and a hard place yes I just don't uh, like that. I, I get why that character exists in that way. I just don't really like that. I, I I found that a really incredibly grating character. It did have the effect of making me think the two Charlies are, like I said at the top of the show, the smartest people, the sharpest people in this family by far. I can see why they feel they have a connection because um, you know they're not sporting a new watch at the bank or doing whatever the heck it is that the mom is doing, which is... And the mom has that one moment of clarity right mm-hmm. after... Um, the attempted murder in the garage where uh, she she's trying to piece it together and you're, oh, you're so close. You're, oh, we asked you to think. I do agree with you on how she's extremely irritating, but I do love the scene where, um, where the detectives are still trying to pull off their whole survey scheme and they're very much regretting it because there's a 45-minute discussion about the proper time to break eggs during cake making. You don't want to miss this. That is hilarious. That is hilarious. I I can't cream the butter after I've broken the eggs. Nope. Let's let's linger on this, though. This is like a Monty Python scene. Hello, daughter of our documentary. (laughs) Would you care for a documentary today? Oh, yes, come on in. Oh, no, you can't photograph that chair until we get the new clip cover over it, but you're welcome to go film me as I make eggs. In, in the remake, Terry Jones would play that part, mm. I do think. Can't yes. break the eggs yet. So Uncle Charlie goes to give his speech. Yep. Uh, Greatest speech young, ever. Le- leaving young Charlie behind since she nearly asphyxiated, so why not? You can't go to the yeah. speech. And we'll she, she nicely manipulates the situation. This is the moment where she gets the upper hand on him, because she makes it so he has to go give the speech, and she, because he tried to kill her, gets to stay behind, unguarded in the house, and go through his things and try to find incriminating evidence. It's a really, really nice moment where she yeah. she maneuvers him, and he knows she's doing it, and there's nothing he can do about it. And the incriminating evidence, as it turns out, is this uh, ring that 
that he gave her earlier in the movie and that uh, that he then uh, – uh, well, she gave it back to him because she was disgusted Did she give it him. back or did she just leave it at the library and it went in the library lost and found? I, no, she I missed that point. The, okay. She left it at the bar. You're, you're oh. right. And um, uh, uh, um, the ring has the engravings of um, – uh, one of the, the widow <laughs> victims, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, Charlie. Uh, you know, Uncle Charlie is really great at shopping on a budget uh, mm-hmm. because it turns out that you can you can give away almost anything after you've murdered somebody. Uh huh. Well, and that the 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 ring thing. One of the things I love about this, I mean, because I love the exposition news network on the radio, the <laughs> newspaper that she finds at the library is so beautifully written. It's not at all like a newspaper no. would be written. But it tells you everything you need to know, including the only victim whose initials match the ring. None of the other victims. We never learn anything else about any of them. And the movie lingers on it for so long because you're expected to read every (laughs) word of the story, audience. David, that's why you have to subscribe to the Plot Advancement Tribune like I do. (laughs) That's right. Because it moves things right along. Yes, we we learn for all of her intellect, Nancy is apparently a very slow reader. (laughs) (laughs) Can we also heap some praise upon that wonderful actress who played the part of the waitress, who who was in was it was in her class in high school, never left town, and is like, oh, I can. That's a real that's a real emerald. Gee, I can always tell just by looking at it. I don't even have to put it. Notice how I didn't have to ask you if it's real. Mm. She she had dirt on someone at the studio. Yeah. (laughs) Either that or Eeyore was her acting coach. Don't mind me. I enjoy no her. Never does. No, she would. That was again. I think that's a beautiful small town touch. Yeah, someone who's yes. ruined and broken down. She, she's the sort of character that that Bruce Springsteen sings about in songs. <laughs> I like the librarian. Is like I can't let you in. It's like all right, I'll let you. Only five minutes, and you get the sense that this is like one of the smartest kids in town, and she's always at the library. It's like the okay, Charlie, for you. But if I let you in, all those other hordes of people trying to get into the library after hours will have to be let in, and it'll yeah. be. I know. I let one. I let one of you in. I'm gonna have to let. Oh, right. Fine. You get five yeah. minutes to go through them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Nobody else comes to the, the library. Nobody else has <laughs> ever been to this library <laughs> nope. except just Nancy. Charlie. I have a friend who's a librarian, and um, he he views the librarian as the secret hero of that. Movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the little kid that's always reading Ivanhoe that's in the library all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah we haven't talked a, enough about Anne and how he, she's the Greek chorus of this movie. He even gets a really yeah, good shot off about what time the library closes, which yeah, you, you know you should if you know. read as much as you should. That that would be Chekhov's library hours. If you mention the library hours, it has to come back. Yeah, she's got the smart little sister who is always commenting on the action that is happening in the movie. Which the is female actually cousin delightful. Oliver, I like to think of her as. <laughs> Complete with glasses. <laughs> Uncle Charlie finishes his speech. Greatest speech ever. <laughs> Greatest speech ever. There's a party downstairs, and uh, <laughs> and we're all invited. <laughs> and we are all invited. The Episcopalian is, minister is there, and he's all nothing for me and my wife, thanks. I, that's very forward of the minister. But the rest of you should get loaded. Yeah, yeah. Pretend like we're not here. Okay, well we won't. Because um, the but, clergy don't drink. Apparently. Exactly. Hmm. Anyhow, um, it, it's at this point that young Charlie saunters down the chair, uh, down the stairs, prominently displaying the ring that she has found. Yes. which mm-hmm. is when Uncle Charlie says, "Well, I'm leaving town." <laughs> I hate to break. I it didn't to you, mean but to I'm... break it to you like this. Yep. But... Just got to pick up the town widow, and I'll be out of here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to leave town without a widow. That's no. just <laughs> yeah, like it's not customary. bringing a bag. No, it'd Customer. be careless. They're, they're like Milano cookies. You may as well consume all the ones in that little layer, and then take it out and get, what do you see? More widows. Goodness gracious. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't eat just, just one. 
Exactly. The next day, Charlie, uh, Uncle Charlie is boarding the train out of town. Stupidly, well, he invites the kids to come on the train to see him off. Stupidly, Charlie gets on the train with him. Yeah. And th- this is the one really dumb thing that, that Charlie does in the movie. The uh, one. Uh, well, I, I really think so. This is the one thing where you're going, come on. Charlie, you, you're you're in full possession of the facts, and you get on the train with your your murderous uncle, and so he. Yeah, but can, she's protecting the kids. The kids, yeah. yeah, I guess so. And he does the matador thing where he like lets the kids run along, and he's like, "Stop!" <laughs> and then I'm he's not got sure her. why she protects the kids because they're both horrible. Yeah, they really <laughs> are. Would anyone miss them? No, no. I wouldn't. I mean, Dad's going to be more concerned with his newspaper. I'm not sure that the the dad and mom would even notice they were gone for a couple of months. Well, the mother certainly wouldn't, but... Weren't um, there some little ones around here? Well, gosh, never mind. my newspaper is so much straighter now that they're... Wait a minute, the kids are missing. <laughs> my brother is gone! He left again! I cannot stand it! I don't care! I, it's like I don't even have children when my brother is gone! But Hume Cronin is there. So. <laughs> yeah, Hume Cronin's there. He's saying, you know, if I, I put some baking powder in that cake instead of soda, it would be like poison. Uh, Uncle Charlie makes it so that the train is pulling out and Charlie is still on the train because it becomes quite apparent he's going to throw her off the train mm-hmm. just as soon as it gets up to speed. But uh, there's a struggle. Un- uh, young Charlie manages to grab onto um, a-, a solid handle, and Uncle Charlie staggers off and falls in front of an oncoming train. Badly timed oncoming train. Really bad luck for Uncle Charlie there. He's, he's dead. Yep. The, the entire town turns out to mourn him. Uh, young Charlie stands outside with FBI agent Dirk Squarejaw, and, uh, <laughs> and she says, basically... Yeah, he was terrible, and uh, he's dead now, and you're the only one who knows how terrible he was. And and that's the end of the movie. No, no, no. And then, and then uh, I, I can't believe we didn't mention, at, at one point before the attempt on her life, um, love. Dirk, Dirk Squarejaw just announces that he's in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's known her for roughly two hours. I don't want to go back to Washington. <laughs> You'll see me back, but I'm not going to be here on business. Being an FBI agent <laughs> is boring. I just assume that's par for the course because this is a 1943 movie where, heaven for Fen, there's <laughs> we, a We've, there, we've there's held a hands, so I must marry you yeah. now. It, yeah, exactly. It just comes out of, out of nowhere, although I do like the fact that he professes love for her, and, she, and she's like, well, you know, Whatever. you're nice, but um, <laughs> I don't know. And then, but but then, this is what happens is when she is there alone and can uh, call the the cops. Uh, he's nowhere to be found because right. he's I don't know he's not and, in Fresno at that hotel that he said he was going to be at. That's, he's got a girl in every town where mm-hmm. he investigates a murder. Yeah, but it, again, it's creepy because she's eighteen theoretically, and he again seems like he's in his mid to late thirties. So, well, that's the standard age ratio 40s. in movies. Yeah, exactly. Of this time. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Isn't he near death at that point? Yep. <laughs> From the consumption, reasonable. The Black Death, I think, yeah, was bad very... humors. The guitar. We're touching on the thing that I that I love the most about this movie, though, as opposed to later Hitchcock, is that uh, Charlie Teresa Wright is really in charge of her own destiny and in charge of her own mm. salvation. Whereas later yeah. Hitchcock movies, the the treatment of women is kind of uncomfortable because <laughs> mo, mo, your, your psychos and your birds are basically grace kelly didn't love me so you must suffer to be <laughs> and it, whereas um in this one 
Dirk Squarejaw can't save her. She has to save herself, and she she is the agent of her own uh, rescue. Uh, she 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 figures out how to trap Uncle Charlie, and um, and, and I really like that. I think mm-hmm. it's unusual among Hitchcock pictures, particularly among the uh, better known Hitchcock pictures. Hitchcock brunettes fare better than Hitchcock blondes. Well, absolutely. Yeah. We reached the end of the of the synopsis. What am I, I? Obviously, we interrupted Phil about ninety times to to get there. Uh, so I want to ask before we you know move on to our next movie, we should talk. What, what do we think of, of of this movie as a whole? We can we can point out some of the amusing things about it. But what what did uh, what did you all think uh, of the movie all all told? Steve, what about you? I'm kind of of two minds about it. I you know the direction was great. I really like the use of shadow in a lot of places. Since this movie has shadow in the title, you got to have shadows in the film, naturally. Um, I, I thought it was nicely tense, and um, you know, it ratcheted up pretty much throughout, which I enjoyed. Uh, I felt like the plot, though, could have been a lot better. And I'm, I'm going to blame it on Thornton Wilder, because I was forced to read Our Town twice in high school, <laughs> oh! and I was not happy about it. <laughs> I feel like the film would have been a lot more effective if there had been some question as to Uncle Charlie's guilt. And we weren't intimately aware early on that he was, you know, a murderer. He could still be creepy, but he doesn't necessarily have to be so yeah. obvious. He, he could be guilty of crimes, but not the horrible murders. And then yeah. you real, and you'll, you kind of hope that he is. And, and then later on, uh, it would be interesting if there was some question as to whether he was really responsible for the accidents that keep befalling young Charlie. But again, it's made abundantly clear that he's the one who, uh, you know, locks her into the garage. So I, I felt like it, that could have made things a lot more interesting. I and think then, that is a byproduct of 1943. Film. Probably, probably yeah. it's probably just an, uh, they didn't want to make it too complex since you know the exactly. audiences were less jaded. And uh, it, my other problem is is that it defies belief for me that anyone in town would not become suspicious of a guy who routinely launches into diatribes about horrible, fat, <laughs> faded, yeah. greedy women at the <laughs> dinner table, and, and almost yeah. you know starts starts accusing the father of embezzlement loudly at the bank yeah. as, as though it's in a joking manner and does does something similar to the bank president. Also, I, I, I couldn't help but notice, gosh, he really enjoys miming strangling things with his hands. <laughs> his that big, strong hands. Mm. I think a lot of that is, uh, is thrown in basically to, well, Uncle Charlie, he, tells, he has his jokes. Um, and, and it's also told from the perspective of young Charlie, where, where she's seen these things through the eyes of, oh God, he's really a monster. Mm. These, these aren't jokes. <laughs> these are terrible things. Why can't you people see? I also find Charlie to be kind of a drip right from oh, the opening sequence. No, no, no. We're going to fight. <laughs> the only drip in this movie is FBI agent Dirk Squarejaw. Nah, she's, she's a drip in the opening scene. Okay, but Char- I think young Charlie's first scene is so depressed. Oh, there's nothing uh, interesting in this town. We're all in a rut. She's like, yes. you know, granted, a stereotypical teenager. Yeah, huh? Well, but 18. Come on. 18. It's time, time to be getting over that. No, no, nobody, teenager or not, who is remotely intelligent, isn't going to rat out Charlie after the first or second time he's tried to kill her. I mean, I just, I just, I find that hard to believe as well. Yeah, but nobody would believe her. That's the thing, right? Like, oh yeah, sure, he cracked the stair, you know, cut the stairs. That why makes wouldn't they believe sense. her? And why wouldn't she at least make an effort? Because everybody loves Uncle Charlie. Yeah, I don't think that's true though. Yet he gave the best speech ever in Santa Rosa mm, history. That's, right. that's the whole thing. I think defies belief to me. I enjoyed the movie. Let me just say that. 
Uh, I, I think overall it was the, the direction and the tension were enough to carry it for me. But, you know, I, I, I would have liked to see the plot be a little deeper and, and uh, a little less obviously false to my to my eyes anyway. Well, I think we've learned that Uncle Charlie isn't the only monster here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, why don't you uh, go next? I just, I, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think I, I like the movie. I, I thought that it was a classic example of a movie where you love all the pieces of this. You just wish the pieces fit together a little bit more cleanly. For, in addition to the examples that are even cited, when uh, uh, you know uh, Assistant Inspector Fred Mertz like takes Charlie inside, said, "Now we're closing in on him. So you know, if he's gonna run away, he's he's only gonna have a few hours to do that. So I'm gonna tell you about this because you know I've I've just been hitting the head with a coconut seed. I forgot <laughs> that I'm actually trying to capture him. Uh, I'm about to. I'm probably gonna be hit by another coconut. And I'm gonna re- remember that I'm supposed to be catching him. So you really should go and warn him. Right. I'm, this is when I started thinking that. Oh, so is is this a double cross? Is are these not actual investigators? They are actually killers or associates of the killers. And when it turns out that that wasn't – that was just no kind of a character doing dumb things that are contrary to their own purpose, you wonder, oh, OK, I really wish that someone had circled that that page of the script and put a big red question mark on it and handed it back to Hitch. All right. Monty, what do you think? Um, well, I thought it was a gorgeously shot movie. Uh, like Steve said, the shadows are great. There's one scene on the top of the staircase where for yes. no real reason, there's just this amazing cabinet of Dr. Caligari lighting going on on the back <laughs> wall. And I also liked, I think Charlie's on the phone and we're supposed to be given the impression that the phone calls have been going on for a while and it's just fade to black. Fade back up with the camera farther back and in a completely random spot and angle. <laughs> and that happens a couple of times. I thought that was really effective. I'm not sure whether this was a joke on purpose, but you remember that newspaper we were talking about when Charlie says he's going to fold a house. He tear makes two tears in the paper, starts to fold. We cut away to the kid. And then three seconds later, there's this amazing paper mache house. <laughs> 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 Again, He's good. They, they were, there were there were six papers delivered every single day. They had they had so much time, so much of this material to figure out how to do clever things with. He's got those strong strangling hands, and they're good That's, for origami exactly. too. Right. The newspaper industry was different then, Monty. I, I guess <laughs> most most of the sales were for manufacturers of pirate hats, paper houses, <laughs> boats. I mostly like the movie. I do have a lot of concerns about mostly just that newspaper scene. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's so bad at covering his tracks. I'm not a baby, Uncle Charlie. Yeah. Well, that that combined with his rants about how widows are bad and should die. I think <laughs> too, too slightly if you wanted to keep it on the down low. But well, nobody noticed that with the newspaper. Even these idiots were like, what are you doing? Hiding something? Hey, there's a page missing. Hey, you're missing a page of dad's newspaper. Hey, everybody. Dad's going to flip Uncle out. Uncle Charlie had this paper and there's a page missing. <laughs> well, fold it nice and dad won't notice. Actually, there's a really good chance that dad won't there's notice. There's only six pages in this newspaper. It's a very small newspaper. Tank McNamara's missing. What, what the it hell? gets across <laughs> is that, the, that he is an uncontrollable maniac, right? I mean, he can't he can't stop his urges. He's going to kill widows and tear newspapers. That's what he's going to do. And I'm all out of widows. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it. It's yeah. Fun. Good. Good. David, what about you? I I mean, I've liked this one for years. I, I can, I, you know, I love the look visually. I love, 
you know, again, the shadows, the staircases. I love the fact uh, that usually Hitchcock lets you see characters think. So, you know, you see Joseph Cotton thinking on the staircase for a minute. You see the, you know, in the beginning when he just walks right past the the guys waiting on the street corner for him. And, and you see them think for a minute and go, is that the guy we should follow? Eh, let's follow him. And, you know, so he so he lets you see the characters think for a minute. They may not all be capable of thinking, but still, <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of the things that I, I noticed this time through, uh, the parallels between the Charlies in the beginning, the first time we see both of them, they're lying in bed and they're just and someone else is talking to them and drawing things out of them. And and as the movie goes on, you know, you know, she makes the point of, oh, I, I was that's who I was named for. Right. And we have something in common and I can sense things that you keep secret and I know things about you and you know, we have this connection and, and, you know, through the movie, they diverge. But in the beginning, it's very clear that they're, they have this bond. So, so that I think is also part of why she doesn't, why she takes so long to mm. come to her senses. Dan Moran, what about you? Uh, like, like a lot of these folks, I, I really enjoy the execution of it. It's a great looking film. I think Joseph Cotton and Teresa Wright both do awesome in this movie. They're fantastic performances, especially Joseph Cotton, who veers between the like charming Deb, debonair, dashing fellow and really scarily psychotic guy. Um, cause there's some good scenes, you know, especially like when she, uh, digs out the, the piece of newspaper from his jacket. And we get the, you know, trademark Hitchcock POV scene where, we're the, you know, we're the camera and we're looking at him and you see his entire face sort of collapse and he gets angry and starts yelling, you know, at us, the audience, essentially, at that point as we're the stand in. Uh, he does such a good job of going back and forth just instantaneously between being terrifying and super char like maybe a little sleazily charming, but like, you know, friendly and jovial. Uh, and so, and even the other characters, I think, if, even if they don't seem to quite fit and they are a little ridiculous at times, I still enjoy most of them. I really like um, Henry Travers as the father, um, just because he's got a very matter-of-fact way of talking about things. I just enjoy, I really enjoy his and Hume Cronin's discussions mm. of uh, of the of murder. It's just they're just so <laughs> delightfully charming because it is this whole idea of this is it's a boring little town. Nothing ever happens here, you know, and and all the people are nice and and picturesque, and the, the family surveys come around because they want the typical American family, and yet everybody's talking about murder and terrible things all the time. And I think it just you know it's a great commentary. I love it. All right, Phil, uh, I guess I need to fill in the blanks here and say uh, I liked it. Uh, like some of the comments here, I, I, there are, I, I sort of see this and think it could have been even better if and maybe, you know, it was just of the time and it was going to be what it was going to be. But I, I felt like there were moments where it could have been even better at doing the things that it did well. And, yeah, the, the mom really annoyed me. And I found the, the the FBI to be amusingly incompetent, especially when you threw in the declaration <laughs> of love that happens late in the film. I love you, Charlie. That was I love you terribly. So bizarre. Um, why must I fall in love with all of my contacts? But this is this film is about the leads and they're great. So that's yes. what I think. Phil, yes. what, you bring it home. Well, as I said, I, I laid my cards on the table early. I think this is Hitchcock's best movie. I love the um, the small town elements of it. And as as I think even this film's harshest critics will point out, I think Joseph Cotton and, and uh, 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 Teresa Wright do a, do a, a fantastic job. 
playing off each other. Mm. It's it 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 really is um, a fantastic movie, I think, in many respects, and I I I do love how the tension builds throughout. I got a couple of favorite lines I got to throw out there before we move on. I like the line where Anne is hopping on the sidewalk and she says proudly to the detective, I broke my mother's back three times. And his response is, not bad. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Yep. yep. I just really liked it's just your father's way of relaxing for the discussion about murder. murder. Yeah. <laughs> the other line I wanted to mention was at the end where they're discussing what transpired the detective and young Charlie. And uh, the uh, Dirk Squarejaw states that the world seems to go crazy every now and then. Like your Uncle Charlie. <laughs> real tactful, Graham. Real tactful. One line that entertained me, not for the shallow reason you think, was wine for dinner. Sounds so gay. You know, <laughs> it's not because of that, just because when else are you drinking wine? Yeah, that well that was that was <laughs> yes. The, not not just the the uh use of words then and now, but the the, the idea of like Normally, we just eat cardboard and drink <laughs> tap water. Or we drink our wine starting at 11 o'clock in the morning. I feel like that's true for community. most of the members of this family. I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about me killing Herb and Herb killing me. <laughs> <laughs> the Incomparable also sponsored this week by MailRoute. Now, imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email. Imagine opening your email and seeing only legitimate mail, just the stuff you want to get, not the stuff you don't. MailRoute can make this a daily reality for you like it has for me. You don't have to install any hardware or software. MailRoute does it all in the cloud. They receive your mail, they sort it, and then they pass on to your mail server only the clean email that you want to receive. It's easy to set up, reliable, trusted by the largest universities and corporations. If you're a desktop user, you'll find MailRoute's user interface is simple and effective. I especially like the email that I get in my inbox that lists everything that was filtered out. I can make sure that something didn't get falsely accused of being spam, a crime it did and commit. It's very rare that that happens, but when it does, one-click lists the sender so that all their mail in the future will get through and delivers it straight into my box. If you're an email administrator or an IT professional, MailRoute has built all the tools that you need. There's an API for easy account management. It supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, Outbound Relay, mail bagging, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. Start a risk-free trial. No credit card necessary. Just sign up. You change your MX record so your mail Mail to your domain goes to MailRoute first, and then MailRoute will pass it through to your mail server. Your mailbox and hardware will be completely protected. It's so simple and effective. There's no good reason not to give it a try and see it in action. You'll like it. I like it. All incomparable listeners will receive 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So go to MailRoute.net slash incomparable now. And thank you very much to MailRoute for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, let's let's speaking of murder, let's yes. talk about <laughs> murder. Adapted by Hume Cronin. Indeed, yes. yeah. there's Hume your connection. Cronin took the uh, stage play <laughs> and adapted it for the screen for his good friend Alfred Hitchcock. There H. is Gopin. a connection between these two movies. Yes. yes. Interesting. Yes. Also people who were in It's a Wonderful there's Life. There's also a thematic connection too. Mm-hmm. Hume Cronin who is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's muse apparently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's not going to be much plot recap here because there's no. not much plot. This is the um this is uh, the bottle episode of Hitchcock movies yes. in many, in <laughs> well, many one respects. Of t- one of two. One of two. Life, yeah. Lifeboat being the Lifeboat other one. Lifeboat is the other one. Yeah. It's a Columbo. That's exactly what I thought. This is such mm-hmm. a Columbo. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he even walks out and then comes back in. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Geez, I hate to bother you, but uh, uh, one more thing, one more, one thing. more thing. I forgot to mention. I forgot to mention that you've misinterpreted my lectures about the inhumanity of man and the right to kill other men. I didn't really mean it like that. I feel really bad. I hate to, but I need to check the trunk now. My aunt used to have a chest just like this. Could could I look inside this chest because it would be such memories for me as a child? I used to play with this chest. You know, the missus never comes to these kind of parties. I know I said everybody should be murdered, but I didn't mean everybody should be murdered. <laughs> I don't feel like I have to recap it now. <laughs> We're done. So so ba- basically, Brandon and Philip are are two uh, are, are are a gay couple good friends good friends <laughs> they are an ex- just yes. a little bit yeah. this is i i love and, and it's never discussed but it's just there i was doing some reading on this movie and it talks about well the homosexual subtext and i screamed out subtext, subtext. <laughs> <laughs> no no it is no i gotta be honest i did not i did not get that initially in fact, the only reason, the only because they're fresh out of college, they could very easily be roommates. <laughs> and, just, and Brandon is talking about how he previously dated uh, Janet, the yeah. girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they're 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 a, they're a couple, and they have this apartment, and they they've planned this the amazing murder. apartment. And when we first see them, they are strangling somebody to death. This is the thing: if you're complaining about uh, Shadow of a Doubt, is boy, they really didn't leave much in the way of doubt as to whether Uncle Charlie is guilty. <laughs> they no. they leave no doubt in this. Well, movie no, this because is this is Columbo. That's the whole point of this movie, though. Opening shot, right? As, as soon as the as soon as the credits end, uh, they are strangling their 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 Incidentally, David. I I love how idyllic the. Music music is during the opening credits like the opening credit music yes. makes it sound like this is going to be a lovely just yeah. little romp through <laughs> well that's true of shadow of a doubt too but it's, it's hilarious here because that gigantic dramatic title card that says rope in the crazy font comes up <laughs> and then the, the strings swell and this sort of a lovely lilt yeah it doesn't go oh. dark until we pan into you know the apartment essentially and it's like oh the, the, the curtains are drawn that's a little weird oh god somebody is being strangled right now has and somehow screaming as he's being strangled which is a bit odd i thought yeah yes so so the 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 conceit of this movie is that the entire film other than the opening shot where there's a, there's a cut if robert zemeckis had been directing this it would have gone through that window and through mm-hmm. those curtains and all the way in but hitchcock just cuts from the from the outside to the inside but um we spend the entire time in this apartment the entire film is there it is the bottle episode um but but not just the location but the fact that these are continuous takes each goes for about 10 minutes and then we we linger for a moment to ponder the back of somebody's coat we zoom into somebody's jacket <laughs> yep there are several cuts though which is always strange to me because i think they go unnoticed if you because you kind of blend out but there are yeah. several just like jump cuts yeah, that yeah. are slightly Noticeable. jarring but but pu- purposeful in their yeah. placement well, I, I, I think those actually probably are better than the zoom into the jacket shot, yeah, which I agree. out like a turd in a punch bowl. The, the gimmick cuts are super distracting to me because I spend the whole movie watching for them. The jump cuts are because they had to physically change the, the reels, the reels yeah. in the yeah. projectors. So he, he said, I don't need to cover those. They have to change them anyway. So Brandon and Philip uh, have committed what they what they hope is the perfect, the perfect murder. murder for some perfect values of murder perfect. as 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 John Dahl who plays Brandon says over and over again. And, <laughs> can, um, can we pause here and examine how this could possibly be the perfect murder when they have absolutely no plan other than kill the guy? Well, you take him out to the country in in Connecticut, and then you just dump his body in a lake, and they'll never I th- know. I I think their argument is they have no motive. 
they have they have no motive. Also, also they've d- they've phoned from they've done a fake phone call from the city to say that hi, I'm David. I'm definitely alive, and I'll definitely yeah. see you three hours later to disguise where they are. I think there's a lot of this plot we haven't we don't get to see. But I think, but I think it would be com- it would be completely appropriate if this guy's arrogance is just that it's perfect. This like I've seen, I've looked from all angles, and only some <laughs> of my genius could possibly. Yeah, that's what happened with Leopold and Loeb. Is they yeah. thought they had the yeah. perfect murder, and it fell apart immediately. Even for that, if if even if it had the initial part had worked out, it's so unbelievably poor of a plan. There's no way they could possibly have gotten away with it. It's absurd. Yeah, they're basically Batman villains. One of their closest friends. Gee, I, who are we going to question? They go out of their way to invite people to the scene of the crime. People that are looking for the person who's dead. That's for arrogance. That's the showing off. This is the crux of the movie. That's not a mistake. That is here. I didn't say it was a mistake. I said it was like being a Batman villain. (laughs) Take a look at the kinds of people we're dealing with here. That it's not enough that they would just simply kill somebody for sport. They would also want to make sure that that they know that, oh my God, we actually had the body out in the middle of the room and nobody yeah. knew it. Aren't we brilliant? Yeah, that yeah. Is this perfect. this is Anne Rand's Dead Poet Society. Let's put <laughs> let's put candles on it. Let's serve food <laughs> on it. Let's invite the parents to let's, the party. Let's give the dad the murder weapon. <laughs> exactly. Let's argue in a surprisingly loud voice about the murder in full view of everybody. <laughs> yeah. They uh, they shove poor. Uh, Pour David's body into a trunk and then decide, hey, we're going to have a dinner party. Let's serve dinner on the trunk. And as Jason says, they put the candelabras up there and uh, they've invited uh, David's father and what turns out to be his dowager aunt, I guess. Uh, (laughs) They've invited David's girlfriend. They've invited the former boyfriend of David's girlfriend. And most importantly, they've invited the beloved uh, headmaster from their prep school, who is played by uh, Jimmy Stewart, to attend the party as well. And uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart... That was their first mistake. Never bring Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, never bring Jimmy Stewart to any party. (laughs) Well, did you love David? Because, you know, I understand you have to kill him then. (laughs) (laughs) Call back to earlier. Yes, good deep cut. I spent much of the movie confusing John Dahl for a young Jimmy Stewart. I I think it's interesting that they they talk about him as a potential co-conspirator. And then right... But... uh, But... uh, Who's the who's the idea man? Is that is that Brandon? That's Brandon. That's Brandon. Brandon. Yeah, Brandon's the idea man. Brandon's like ah, he wouldn't have the guts to pull it off. You know, we he he believes in it from a, an idea standpoint, but not he couldn't actually do it. But I like that they they have this fantasy that that Jimmy Stewart is um, one of them or almost one of them, and they they invite him sort of out of glee of like oh he gets to be a part of this thing the idea sort of germinated in long discussions they had with him when he was their housemaster right so they're they're his ideas that they're putting into practice here i do think it's sad that poor farley granger is always getting talked into murdering people it's really (laughs) a shame yeah you know once is an accident (laughs) (laughs) strangers on a train Yes, that but that that's the other genius of of just how this is constructed. Where you feel as though it's not just enough for this guy to plot a murder, commit a murder just for fun, and then again have the dinner party with the body on the open. He also is getting this big rise out of I have basically talked and browbeat this person into being my accomplice in this murder, even yeah. though he has apps. He does not share my belief system that people should die for my amusement. I mean, there's there's a little bit of a corollary between him and uh, Uncle Charlie, I think, from Shadow of a Doubt, like both of whom kind of seem to believe that they are above 
above morals. I don't, no, above I, I don't know. I, I feel as though Uncle Charlie is is seriously bent. Whereas this person is just such is has a psychopathic behavior and so oh, yeah, he's really grounded. <laughs> well, he, he's on his way. He's young. Oh, no, it's, it's, there's a, there's a difference between like there's a difference between seeing the entire world as prey, meaning that I'm a I'm a killing stalking beast that kills for for, for uh, if if you've got something that costs eighty dollars and I need that eighty dollar thing, you're dead because that's that's how I value human life. It's another thing to simply say I'm bored. I think I'll kill that person because nothing's yeah, on Netflix. But, today. but then the, the, the whole experiment, the whole like rationale given by Jimmy Stewart is talking about murder as a justifiable way of like you want you want to get into the restaurant, you want to get theater tickets. Like I think that. The, there is a overriding philosophy there of you know he feels like everybody stupid should be he should be able to kill anybody stupid that he wants to like he may not be at Uncle Charlie levels yet of thinking the whole world is a joke but like if he kept going for a while he would definitely end up there well I mean then that's part of why he's invited the the former boyfriend of the girlfriend because it's like well if we get David out of the way they're actually a better couple you know we'll we'll shove them back together and. It's it's all social engineering. Although I don't, I mean, not through anything that he cares about, right? Like he doesn't actually right. care about the happiness of either of those people, right? He just wants to be manipulative. Exactly. I think that might have been part of his plan, though, to cover for well, why isn't David here? Oh, well, he must have known that I that I was going to be here, so he just decided not to come. That too, or that you didn't invite him because you just want to manipulate us into like being feeling awkward about the fact that we used to be in a relationship. My favorite thing in this is probably the scene where. Uh, and, you know, this happens at several points where the camera's view is not where the action is, yes. or, or at least yes. not, not where oh, the talking, absolutely. not where the talking is. And it is yeah. beautiful. And the be- mm-hmm. it happens several times. The best one is as we very slowly watch the, the housekeeper, housekeeper Mrs. Yes. Wilson, yes. cleaning up the so trunk good. because she's going to take all the stuff off of the trunk and then open the trunk and put all the books in the trunk, thereby revealing the dead body. One of the best suspense moments, I think, in any Hitchcock it's film. It's just mm-hmm. amazing. And there's no mm-hmm. music, and it's just the conversation. And she walks all the way down the hall. She so goes into the kitchen, walks all the way back, yeah. walks all the way down the hall yeah. again. Yes. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. and you're like, every time she gets a little closer, your breath catches a little more. And there's more. conversation happening, and, and you have at several points in this film, this overlap conversation. It's very Robert Altman-esque, and it's, and it's like, it, the point is not, it, it's a dinner party. People are having different conversations at different places, and that's all the hubbub is happening while we very slowly watch, and the, it, it's just the realization, it starts and it just keeps getting worse and worse that she is going to open that trunk and it's amazing and for people who aren't familiar with the scene it's not as though oh they're just gonna have to like lift up the trunk it's no it's completely set there's a tablecloth on it they're like empty they're used plates on it they're candelabra on top of it every single layer it's like okay now i'm gonna blow out the candles take the candelabra away walk 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 away walk 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 back and now let me take all the i've got this tray and i'm gonna take all these empty plates walk 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 away and yeah all the while you are rushing to the conclusion so that you get there way before she is physically able to get to that point and that creates some amazing suspense it is a fantastic scene and the shot ends with the shadow of somebody suddenly walking in which is really impressive when you realize they needed to do special lighting just to actually cast a shadow on the ground. Mm-hmm. The shot that got me even before that, though, was I actually tweeted it out because I would just I just love this shot so much. I was watching I was rewatching it in the afternoon and I was watching on the iPad and just the shot where every, no one everyone's the dinner party's in full swing. Nobody has any suspicion that anything's going on. And then there's a conversation that there's a casual shot of Jimmy Stewart. And then he just holds on that shot for 
I had to time it out more than 20 seconds. Just count to yourself right now, not not right now, but like think about (laughs) how long 20 seconds really is. And imagine that as just that the camera's not pulling in. It's just a static shot of him listening to these two murderers talk idly. And you sense that there's this little thing happening in the back of Jimmy Stewart's eyes that's, I don't know what's wrong, but something's very wrong here. And that's the first, there's, I see a thread dangling at the end of this cable knit sweater. And I'm going to keep pulling, I'm going to start pulling on that thread until this whole thing comes apart. If I can tip my hand here, uh, the reason I picked this movie is because I think it's uh, indicative of Hitchcock's approach to a suspense movie. And um, I'm going to paraphrase a a, a quote that he once said, where basically a good suspense movie is the audience knows that there's a bomb and Mm -hmm. that it's going to go off at one o'clock. And no one, no one on the screen knows that it's going to go off at one o'clock. And they're talking about all these trivial matters and all this, this stupidity. And the audience is sitting there going, "Come on, you know that." Oh, <laughs> and, and that, and that is basically what he does in Rope. And I, think, well, the, uh, the way I heard it, and and I was, I was going to say this too, is that you know, if if you show two guys having a conversation at a table, and it's the most boring thing in the world, and after ten minutes, the table blows up. You've got a quick shock and, oh, it blew up. But if you start the shot from under the table and you see the bomb and then you come up and you have the exact same boring conversation, <laughs> but the whole time you're like, get out of the way. It's going to blow up. Oh, my <laughs> God. You know, yeah. and the most boring thing is, is exciting. I think of the uh, opening shot of uh, Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, with a bomb in the car. I was thinking of Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, also good. Yeah. With a, under yeah. the floor. Yeah. Like, there's this long conversation that doesn't go anywhere, but, oh, God, what if he looks over there? Similar, I think, when I when I watch this for a film class at some point, you talk about the difference between surprise and suspense, where just surprise is, you know, everybody on the screen. You know, it's the jump scare in, in a horror movie where the killer jumps out with a knife, right? And the people on the screen are surprised. And you are also surprised in the audience. But now, like Phil is saying, you and the audience have been let in on the secret. You know something that the characters don't. And that's where the tension starts to exist. Uh, and that is what he's so good at. Yeah, I think because of Psycho and Birds, uh, Hitchcock uh, wrongly gets painted with the, the mm. horror movie brush. And he yeah. doesn't do horror movies. He does he does suspense movies, and and really he does spy movies too. Yeah, uh, where 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 it's it's tension, and you know what's going to happen, but uh, the characters don't know what's going to happen, and and how in the hell are they going to get out of this? And that's that that that's what makes his movies interesting. What, do we never see? Do we ever see uh, Jimmy Stewart come in? No, he just appears. He just yeah. appears. He's come in yeah. down the hall when our distract we're distracted elsewhere. He's been talked about. I really like that. And then and then he's suddenly there. And not all, that that works so effectively because nobody knows he's there. Yeah. Because we know because we know that voice and we know that person. I think that I think that's what makes that work. But it's great because he's the one they've been kind of waiting to see. And it's also the hammer dropping of like, here's the complication. These other people are probably not a problem. This guy is going to be a problem. Right. And they start to get John Dahl gets nervous. He freaks out. Right. Brandon freaks out. And like you, he starts stuttering and Jimmy Stewart notices that he starts <laughs> stuttering. because yeah. He's very excited. Yeah. I was off. mad about that line. He, he says you always <laughs> did stutter when you were excited. If anyone in the world doesn't get to make fun of someone stuttering, it's Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that it's almost a full 20 minutes before he even appears. Yeah. And we keep hearing about him and and he's the important guest. Just like Columbo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to put in a a good word both for John Dahl here. Unfortunately, he didn't really go on to much else. 
Um, yeah. uh, but he's really like smarmily great in this role. He's so psychopathic yeah. and like just disturbed. And uh, also, I want to put in a really good word for drunk Farley Granger, who is my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> he just gets increasingly drunk as the camera pans away from him and then comes back and is just increasingly nonsensical. I got a, uh, John Dahl gave me a uh, Cumberbatch kind of yeah, uh, feeling. Yeah, yeah. From that. Very similar kind of kind of feeling there. But I liked him a Slightly lot. Slightly reptilian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah. Uh, drunk Philip. Drunk Philip is awesome, and so is Drunk Farley Granger. <laughs> what? <laughs> Increasingly out of control, and you know, and again, you don't want to take Brandon's side, but you have that moment where you're like, "Shut up!" Yeah, get away with this if you would just shut up. Well, it's funny, but you do take you do take Brandon's yeah. side almost almost up until the point where Jimmy Stewart returns and does his Columbo moment, yeah. because right. you're you're wondering, you know, are these guys going to get caught? And the tension there is not. I hope somebody figures what out what's going on. It's right, I hope somebody right. doesn't. Yeah, you're exactly. on his side, right. and then and right. then uh, Jimmy Stewart turns up again, and Brandon has a gun, and you realize that he's in real danger, and then you're on Stewart's side. It's yeah. very much like a Columbo, also in that you do sort of want to root for the killer. You want him to get away with it because you know Columbo is so good, and you know he's not going to get away with it. <laughs> okay, well, y- yes and no. I, I, it, I, it did re- it remind me of Columbo for almost exactly that reason, but the thing is, some t- it's not about finding out who the killer is or if they're going to come to justice because you kind of know that they're going to get caught. It really is what are we going to learn about this killer over the course of this <laughs> these, these mm-hmm. events, especially as the pressure mounts and mounts and mounts how are they going to react to it? Are they going to yeah. – in some of the Columbos, they just increasingly are resu- – they know that, okay, I'm on borrowed time, but I can do a few things to maybe buy myself more time. But I know this is, inev- is inevitable. There's self-delusion sometimes, and sometimes I'm going to double down on this. Um, I, but watching watching Philip, watching Farley Granger just unspool is exactly the reason why you love this. That, <laughs> oh, there, there, yeah. There's so there's so many there's so many shots uh, there's so many shots you just love about this, and so many of them would just look so cheeseball if they were not being done by a master. Oh. How about <laughs> he's we'll have Farley Granger playing piano just sort of like to bleed off some of the tension and to look casual, and Jimmy Stewart just sort of saunters off and say, "Oh, you're such a good piano player. I can't believe that I, I didn't think." that you'd have a metronome and he starts it ticking yeah which is super distracting if you're trying to play piano and every page of dialogue he (laughs) he, he nudges the slider to get go faster and then faster (laughs) and faster and you see the music gets faster faster, granger is not playing faster but he's making more mistakes now and it's like oh you just want to rewind and play that back because Oh, good heavens, that is brilliant. The great bit there is when it seems like Jimmy Stewart is getting off track and, and Philip starts to laugh and the tempo slows down and it starts you know becoming less and less dissonant. And then Rupert kind of gets a little closer to the truth again and it speeds up again and, and the, the whole thing starts anew. It's just it's a fantastic scene. Well, and just the choreography of this. I mean, it, it, it was based on a stage play, and it has the feel of a play yes. on the film, yeah. which a lot of movies that are adapted don't. It is, it is very stagey. But the thing I love about it is just, just the sheer choreography that had to go into it, not just that 
it was the continuous takes, but you know, the walls and the furniture sliding in and out yeah. and having to put the furniture back and have the camera and the unbelievably here. huge and, cameras of the time. Yeah. Yes. And, all and, and the scenery, the, just the, the cyclorama behind it. Yeah. It's not a painting. You know, you've got lights coming on in buildings and steam little, coming little out of chimneys yeah. Yeah. And, and you've got spun yeah. glass clouds that are moving through the whole thing. And apparently he reshot the second half of the movie because he wasn't satisfied with the sunset. Yeah, it's stagey, but the camera is always moving around and going right. to yeah. weird angles. With the set, you clearly could stage it so everybody's just playing straight out and you shoot it like I Love Lucy. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it. I think you get a full view. I think you get like a 360 at some point where you see just about every angle of the room, which you don't usually get in a movie, too. Well, and then you up the difficulty factor by insisting on doing eight-minute takes for everything. Yeah. So if something goes yeah. wrong at minute six, it's like, oh, well, get another reel in there and let's get going again. If IMDb trivia is to be believed, uh, you know, you have, like, ca- camera people being having their feet run over by cameras and, and like, <laughs> being dragged off to screen yeah. away from the microphone. So. It's like a Civil War hospital in there. There's, yeah. there's so much you don't consider until you start thinking about that. Because I, I was also re- probably reading the same articles that you were – I didn't think about that because these are huge cameras and there are huge like transatlantic pipeline cables connecting everything up. And so all these actors have to like be stoic from the waist up while they're like hopscotching over these moving cables yeah. <laughs> during yeah. the course of the scene. Hmm. I feel like the uh, the opening sequence where we're looking through curtains is probably a nod to the fact that this is basically a stage play being. Yes. Yeah, the curtains yeah, are drawn. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't actually open, but we get the impression. I, I think maybe my favorite visual gag in the whole movie is, you know, when they open the, the side curtains and there's that neon sign that is literally right on top of their the red windows. and green. Yeah. And and it's just there. And, and so it's kind of this joke of, you know, here's this neon blinking the whole time. Right. This neon in the middle of the and now room. Now we know why he's insane. Well, and but then at the end, you know, now it's discovered they found the body and, and and Jimmy Stewart has fired off his gun and you hear people calling the police and they all just kind of settle down. And now because of the darkness and the shifting of light, it winds up becoming police lights. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a foreshad- it's, there's a foreshadow there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just so nice. My perception was that the neon lights were in blue until we get to Jimmy Stewart comes back to find his cigarette case. And that's when the lights are now red. Yeah. Well, they're green they and red, red flashing. And yeah, yeah. yeah, they alternate. I, I didn't notice them being red the two before windows. that. That might just been my brain. See, my favorite visual flourishes in that movie are the different things they do with the rope. There's the scene yeah. where uh, John yeah. Dahl disposes <laughs> of, the the, door. of the rope in the kitchen while the kitchen door is flapping open shot. and closed. Yeah. And he, he makes a big production of dropping it in the drawer. And then there's a scene where it's a close-up of the rope because he's tied the books that he's going to give David's father with it, which is really sick mm-hmm. when you think about it. And then uh, uh, when Jimmy Stewart returns, he the, the camera uh, zooms in on his pocket as he pulls the rope slowly out of it to, 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 to reveal it. <laughs> he, what a sick mofo. <laughs> Really, the rope should have gotten top building in this movie. <laughs> well, it's got the name of the movie. It did. Well, it's it's it the did. title character. Starring some rope as rope. <laughs> as rope. As himself. Introducing. <laughs> My one critic, you know, the one loose end I feel like they really didn't wrap up for the murder. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Oh. Yeah, no, I was going to say the... Um, that was a funny hat. joke. Not. I'm afraid <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I, oh. Don't be naughty. This is what you're hoping for, Phil? This is what you bought upon us? David's hat is is left in the closet. 
which is kind of an oh, amateur yes. move. It's a perfect crime. Shut up. <laughs> well, again, I'm going to refer you to Leopold and Loeb, who thought they did the perfect crime, and one of them left his glasses there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, criminals. Yeah. Not so bright. Problem here is every phase of this crime is so asinine that how anybody, even a sociopath, could think it was a perfect crime defies logic. It, 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 I think mm. that's part of its 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 elegance in some ways is that it is totally it's it's spur of the moment, right? And like yes. it, you know, even if they've premeditated to a certain extent, it's so ridiculous. It's the idea of like it's so ridiculous it just might work. So so the thinking is then that everybody would think, no, that's far too stupid for those two intelligent boys to have tried. Well, I think it's just no one would ever think that they would do it, right? Like, it's it's so ridiculous, so over the top. Look how well-dressed they not are. Not even Jimmy Stewart believes that they would do it. Uh, a former classmate of mine uh, who is now in the U.S. Justice Department once said to me, thank God criminals are so stupid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> about, the, about the staging of it, I wanted to say that uh, – I love that it feels it's got a, it's got the dynamic feeling of a, of a stage play, with the one difference being where the camera goes, and that is the that is the power that the director has over you to point you where you should be looking at all times, which in my mind actually magnifies the effect of this. I I thought that that made it uh, supremely effective because it, it it's it's going to a stage play and always looking exactly where you need to look. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was, uh, actually spectacularly good. I, uh, I liked the whole thing, um, quite a lot. So I get, I give it a, I give it a big thumbs up. I think I thought it was just incredibly effective and intense. And, and I liked the fact that we were moving around in this, in this space. It was a, a, you know, it had the cinematic element with the with the way the camera's moving around, but it also felt like it was just riveting theater. And uh, it's not an experience I've had in many films, so I really appreciated it. I just can't get over how it's it's it really is like X Games downhill snowboarding, where it's you just see him. I'm yes yes I could just jump this, but why not? Why don't I just do a backflip while I'm also yeah. doing this? Like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna show you how re, how adept I am and how absolutely fearless I am. That anybody else would absolutely snap their neck in four places if they tried to do some of the things that I'm trying to get away with here. And yet when he does it, you ju- you. You don't even notice it the first time particularly, and then you notice it the second time, and you think, oh, oh, oh I just noticed that. Oh, wasn't that interesting? And oh, yeah. what flair. Yeah, I'm right with you here, Jason. I, I loved everything about this. Mm-hmm. I thought the acting was superb. I I loved the sort of gallows humor that popped up every oh, now yeah. and then. Like uh, frequently, you know, there's a line where Janet says, I hope you knock him dead to Philip. And- yeah, exactly. There's a, another one where she says, "I could really strangle you, Brandon." Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Ding. you're quite a, you're quite a good chicken strangler. Chick- as I oh, recall, the chicken, nice the too. chicken strangling <laughs> is so Shut great. Up. I'm not a chicken strangler. I've never strangled a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the equivalent of ripping the newspaper, right? It's like I think you're giving away a little too much here. Now we know what his safety word is. I also like the uh, with the introduction um, of Jimmy Stewart to Nancy when she says, uh, "Did he do me justice?" His response is, do you deserve justice? <laughs> I actually laughed out loud at that. I thought it was hilarious. There's a lot of really nice details in here. I like the fact that uh, at the end, he leaves two bullets in the gun 
There's there's one yes. shot during the oh, struggle, yeah. and he fires three out the window. Mm-hmm. I never yeah. thought so about that. That's he wisely oh, yeah. keeps two in the chamber in yep. case he needs one for each of the boys. Yeah, I hadn't seen this <laughs> yeah. before, and that absolutely yeah. popped up, yeah. I ran that back to actually count out mm-hmm. the number of shots he had fired, and I said, three, oh, yeah. God, he left two. He's going to kill them both yep. <laughs> if they give him trouble. <laughs> if they give him trouble, that's what he's going to do. And I, I really like the way that the, the tables turn when Rupert returns, because he's so cocksure throughout the first the party segment. And when he comes back, and it's he's pretty clear on the fact that the guy's got the gun, he now just seems all too fallible. And he suddenly seems genuinely nervous about what he's gotten himself into. And mm-hmm. I think that is just, that's fantastic. The desperation with which he's, he goes to, he goes to uh, Jimmy Stewart and tries to, I, I believe that I can talk him into being an accomplice too. Because, oh my God, we are cut from the same cloth. We are, we are kindred spirits and he will be more than happy to help me cover up this murder and, and, and take, play, take part in it. And I actually with, thought almost up until the very end that he might just turn. Well, that was the question, I didn't, right? I didn't think I didn't think so, but I, I okay, I, I I didn't have the same experience. I think all. in a modern film, I would have thought that it was possible. In this, with Jimmy Stewart being the, the character, I being thought Jimmy you know, Stewart, he's not a killer clown <laughs> in this one. So, <laughs> if there was a turn that I was sort of half wondering if was going to happen, is if if they if they are kind of the same people, he would definitely come back, not necessarily to bring them to justice, but I know that I can inflict a lot of suffering if I just let them quietly try to figure out if I know or if I'm just simply if I just really forgot my cigarette case, and oh, and the up until the time when he just opens the window and sticks his hand out there with a gun and fires shots into the air, which is not the uh, – even, even if I thought that, okay, maybe he is going to call people in, I would never have figured out that he's going to do the most painful way possible, yeah. which is going to be, no, we're, we're just going to sit out here while I've got the gun and two bullets, and you're going to listen to the commotion, and are you going to listen to police sirens start to come? And, and we're just the gonna... police are going to try to guess where that shot came from. Yeah. It's going to take well, a couple it's, hours. It's smart, too, <laughs> because, because if he tries to make for the door, there's a chance he could still be over powered by those two i mean he's got a bum leg there's two of them they're younger he's ruined the perfection of their crime at this point because In now event, you're not you're not getting a trunk with a body out yep. of, the, of the apartment under these circumstances uh, so uh, steve and i have professed our uh approval of this one uh the, the rest of you guys want to want to jump in here before we wrap it up i kind of find it gimmicky like i spend a lot of the time watching the camera thinking oh they just had to swap that table in when the camera moved over there oh here comes the hidden cut like camera work is very fancy i think it may be too fancy it may be fancy for its own sake for me you know i actually got most of the way through the movie before i remembered that i had read somewhere that it was all done as one continuous shot and so that didn't distract me i could definitely see it doing so had i remembered that in advance but it, it wasn't so gimmicky to me that it was always poking out at me until the jacket zoom scene, and that was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I agree with with Monty that it's it's gimmicky, but I don't think that detracts necessarily from it. Like if it's the kind of thing where I feel like you know, again, like I think Andy was saying earlier, in, in other hands it would probably come off a lot worse. But since there's chops to sort of back it up here, and because the action is so electrifying, 
and that the actors do such a great job of capturing your attention, I don't find it as distracting as it otherwise would have been. I mean, I've seen Rope a number of times now, and it still manages that scene, you know, that Jason was talking about with the housekeeper walking down the, the hall and then all the way back, like never fails to like put a catch in my breath. Just it's so well executed. Even having seen this movie several times and knowing exactly what was going to happen afterwards, you still have that moment of like, oh, dear God, she's going to open it in front of all these people. That would be terrible, you know. And so I think that uh, it's it's I agree with Phil's, you know, casting this as an underrated movie since I know it didn't didn't do very well at the time. But it is technically I think there's a lot of stuff going on here and it just shows the breadth and range of Hitchcock's talent that he can do a movie like this as well as a movie like uh, you know Rear Window you could argue is gimmicky I think it's his best movie that's my favorite of his but you know you could certainly make an argument for the gimmickry of it Um, but he he in some ways does really well when he has those constraints to work with I think it really brings out some of his creativity yeah I Phil you know the um Reading up on this film after I watched it to find out that it was, it seems to have generally not gotten very good reviews and even revisited it, you know, decades later, it didn't really get very good reviews. Also that Hitchcock said that he thought it was a failed experiment and that it was essentially unseen for decades. Jimmy Stewart said it was his least favorite movie that he did with Hitchcock. He did not enjoy (laughs) this movie. And so I I read all of this after having watched it and I thought, wow, everybody is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. And maybe it's because it's 2015 now, and yeah. and it's not 1948. But it, from the perspective of somebody watching it for the first time in 2015, I I thought it was kind of terrific. So I felt like it was fresh <laughs> in a way that I have not experienced in a while. I have not seen a film like this. It's I mean it's very the the language is very arch, like the yeah. the Broadway writing of the time, and I mean that's the only thing for me is that I can I can sort of see the the stilted language and that pulls me out of it a little bit. But yeah. I don't mind because the tension is so good, and and the yeah, and again, it's it's like a, a really good Columbo, like that. I've I've seen it maybe mm. eight or nine times. Because the dialogue, the dialogue in just the movie can, can really take you out of, of the movie if you pay too much attention to it, yeah. which is a weird thing yeah. to say. Mm. And the camera work in the movie can really take you out of it if you're focused on the camera work. But. Um, I really like the the tension of it. I like that it is the very definition of suspense. And I really think there's something to be said. We have this vision of Jimmy Stewart um, as this clean-cut, all-American guy. And in this movie, hmm. he's a complete dick. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I, I really like um, movies where Jimmy Stewart plays a dick. Um, Anatomy After of- the Thin Man. Anatomy of a Murder, The Naked Spur. These these are really enjoyable movies, which I, I would recommend to people. Even though he solves the crime, I mean, what he's really saying is, hey, I may I may have written about how you should go ahead and kill people without feeling bad, but I didn't mean for you to do it. I mean, it's not it is a nuanced reaction he has because he's a jerk. Well, it's, and it's that he's realized that this was a huge mistake. You know, this this calls everything in his life into question. It is the dark version of the Marshall McLuhan cameo in Annie Hall. Uh, you know nothing <laughs> of my work. But this one I, I, I thought was aces. I really, you know, I think you hit it out of the park with with these, uh, Phil. 
Good. Uh, this I, might be the best thing that I've seen on old movie club. Person. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I we'll think, have to correct that. I, I think I enjoyed version. rope more than I've enjoyed any of the selections in old movie club so far. Like when we were done, I turned to, I turned to Lauren and I was like, that was terrific. And I, you know, usually it's like, well, that's another old movie club in the books. <laughs> well, that's, that's kiss me deadly. Phil didn't break yep. me this time. <laughs> I, I like the fact that it's compact. They get it yes. all done in an hour and 20. And we've seen some films that are, a little stretched out in Indeed. the past. Wait, you guys are saying you liked Rope better than Singing in the Rain or Duck Soup? Well, that's crazy talk. Well, but, Duck uh, Soup, I can't. Uh, yeah, no, Duck, Duck Soup, I just watch all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that. Jason has say, already said that he doesn't like Singing in the Rain. And I don't like he, Singing in the Rain. Because there is human excrement where a soul should be. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would probably... It's that's that's a tough call, Monty. I've got to say, both all three of those are, I think, quite great movies. I, I like Singing in the Rain a lot. I think I probably would rewatch this first before I'd rewatch any of the others. So, so I so I've said that um, uh, Shadow of a Doubt is my favorite, and and Morin said that I think um, Rear Window was his favorite Hitchcock movie. Do, does anyone else have a, a favorite Hitchcock they want to throw out there? Uh, I actually mm. liked the Thirty Nine Steps a whole lot. Mm. The Thirty Nine Steps, I I really yeah. enjoyed. Good movie. I, we we could discuss that now, but I think this podcast would last five hours. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so I'll just throw out super fun, like North by Northwest, but more action. Yeah. And harder yeah. to understand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love North by Northwest just because. Um, but I love fun. <laughs> what? You love fun? That's I know. Ridiculous. Crazy? Well, I've seen all of four Hitchcock movies, including these two, and... Uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to say I'm a psycho guy, but that's, you know, that's just psycho has its charms. Psycho, I think, is charms. I think the, the, the great thing about psycho is that or the things I like about it is, is so much of the stuff that doesn't have to do with everybody boils it down to the shower scene or, you know, the Norman Bates reveal sort of at the end. And there is so much more going on in that. Yes. movie. Oh, yeah. It is yep. a fascinating movie. I, I just cannot. I've seen it a number of times for film classes and things like that. And it just every time I watch it, it's like there is so much stuff going on here that you don't even pay attention to. It's, it's all these different movies in one. And oh, yeah, I think the, some of the best stuff happens oh, before so Bates even turns up. Well, it's I mean, it, it is essentially a psychotic movie. It is a movie that has a psychotic break because it starts in one place and goes someplace totally different. Uh, yeah. it's well, that's like my, my father going to see Psycho in the theater was one of his like, I mean, to this day, one of his favorite film going experiences because nobody said anything. Nobody knew what it was about. Nobody right. spoiled it. Yeah. You get 20 minutes into the movie and suddenly, wait a minute, you just killed the main character. What the hell's going on? <laughs> you could argue that's gimmicky too, but it like again it in different in different hands that might not that might have been a terrible movie, but Hitchcock can pull it off. I, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with Dan by the way and say that I think Rear Window is my favorite. You know, it's not a classy answer, but I actually really liked Alfred Hitchcock Presents. There are not a lot of yeah. respected directors that have a theme song that come from their <laughs> comic slash macabre anthology television show. I respect that about him. And there are a lot of good episodes of that. That's a yeah. theme song people still remember, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my favorite probably has to be Dial M for Murder. Oh, because interesting. I, 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 I like Psycho, but the problem with it is that, for me, I see it once, and then I see it twice, and there's really... I, I have to I have to be enjoying only like the craft of it. There's really nothing else I can really savor. What I love about Dial M for Murder is Ray Moland. 
the greatest to me the greatest hitchcock murderer ever because he is <laughs> so clever and he's showing so much agility he has what is legitimately a really really good well thought out plan and then something throws a monkey wrench in it and he, instead of like oh my god i gotta cover this up it's wait a minute this could be even better and this really is the classic case of i kind of hope he gets away with it yeah, because he's he he deserves the win in that sense, and the and the other great thing is that the inspector who is this I'm Inspector Inspector Thompson of the Yard, my crikey, are you absolutely bloody certain that you only had one key, sir? But really, watching Raymond, I could watch Raymond do that to do that the movie once every month for the rest of my life and never get bored with it. <laughs> I, I also was I also was lucky enough to see. A 3D screening of it in the say, original. Speaking of gimmicky, <laughs> well, yeah. okay, but but well. but if you don't have to see it in 3D, I I only saw it in 3D <laughs> like maybe the tenth time I saw it. <laughs> It's kind of obvious the shots though that they set up for the 3D. <laughs> well, but you paid for okay, the 3D, man. you want all three dimensions. <laughs> but but it's maybe, maybe that's also the benefit of having had the opportunity to see it. It does. I didn't think it was terribly gimmicky when I when I saw it like in Flatland, but when I saw it in the, your basic, you have two you have two projections in the in the in the lighthouse. You're wearing like not red green glasses. You're you can see things in true color, and you have this moment where. You know, the, there's something between you and the thing you want to see, and the entire audience leans to the left to see around that lamp so they <laughs> can see the person who just entered. That's like, okay, this guy knew how to deal with 3D. Yeah. So to to counteract this positivity for, for listeners out there who want to, like, dive into the Hitchcock pool, let me steer you away from three movies. Um, <laughs> uh, don't watch The Wrong Man. Don't watch The Trouble with Harry. And for God's sake, don't watch the birds. <laughs> I like the birds. The special effects do not hold up, but it, it's well. got some great no, scenes. The, the, all the birds on the jungle gym is still just a great as they <laughs> I, slowly I do as they're, yeah, as they're walking fantastic scenes. Okay, watch two minutes of the birds and then go <laughs> <Yeah>. away. <laughs> Family plot, not so much. No, to ca- I don't like to catch a thief. I know a lot of people do. Yeah, but I, d- it's I something's don't. lacking. Yeah. Something lacking in it for me. The, it should be better than it is. It has my favorite Hitchcock cameo, but aside from that, oh, uh, uh, do watch Notorious, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I completely yeah. forgot about Rebecca. My new answer is Rebecca. You guys, oh. all right, good. Oh, I, I like Rebecca's. Saboteur. Saboteur yeah. is very good. Yes, Foreign Correspondent is very good. I oh, just watched excellent. that recently. I liked and, it a lot. And if you like, uh, if you like Farley Granger and Rope, you'll love them oh. in uh, Strangers, Strangers on a Train. train. <laughs> That's a great movie. This is another stupid plan, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> crisscross. Thank God they're so stupid, as my friend once said. It's got nothing on putting soda in your uh, in your coffee. <laughs> uh, the old soda poison trick. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this has been a successful edition of the old movie club. Well, we can't have that happen again. No. So p- you'll pick ter- terrible things that nobody should watch for a theme next Jason, time. Jason, it's almost as though you've plotted the perfect podcast. Interesting. <laughs> nobody look in the trunk. <laughs> Did I mention that? I've had something to drink. I hope nobody looks in the trunk. I've already disposed of my recording. So I had the table laid out, and then they said, you can't serve it on the table, and they made me all bring everything over to the trunk for no reason. <laughs> no reason. You edited the podcast, didn't you, Jason? You edited it so that the crime was edited out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Something like Sometimes that. Sometimes you gotta kill the podcast you love. <laughs> that was your plan all along. <laughs>
Okay, I'd like to thank my guests for joining me on another edition of The Old Movie Club. Monty Ashley, thanks for being here. Thank you. I didn't kill anybody. No, not yet. Uh, David Lohr, thank you. Thank you. Un- unlike Rope, I'm, I'm glad that this David was here for the whole thing. And live. Hey. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Go back. back in your trunk now, sir. Yeah, well. <laughs> Andy Inodko, thank you very much. I admit that I did it, but the real criminal is the society that made me. Dan Morin, thanks for being here. I had a quip and then it went off the rails. Pleasure to be here. Oh, I hope there wasn't another train coming in the other direction. When it was, <laughs> it was going to be about convenient. how you guys, it was going to be about the coffee you guys were all drinking. Uh, I don't know. And Steve Lutz, thank you. No use standing here. I'm going to get myself a bottle of beer. <laughs> and for putting this all together, Philip Michaels, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our evening of tales of murder. <laughs> and now, here's some sponsors to further kill your enjoyment of the evening. That's the worst Jimmy Stewart I've ever heard. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> podcast being hosted by Dr. Evil all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> And for The Incomparable, I've been your host, Jason Snell. We'll see you next time.